Welcome to Share Public Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center's podcast, connecting you to topics, issues, and colleagues throughout our region and the country that highlight what we all share in public health. Thank you for tuning into this series that focuses on public health advocacy. Hey, public healthers, thank you for tuning into this episode of Share Public Health. My name is Deborah Thompson. I'm a public health advocate, and for eight years, I was the point of contact for legislators at Iowa's State Health Department. These days, I spend my time volunteering for the Iowa Public Health Association's Advocacy Committee with my dear friend Hannah Schultz, who's the producer for this podcast series, and I'm your host. This is the second of four episodes about advocacy. In the series, we'll explore the motivations public healthers all over the Midwest feel about advocating for their craft. They'll give us advice on how to be successful, and they'll ask that you consider finding your voice to aid in our collective efforts to promote and improve the health of the heartland. Thank you for listening, and your feedback is welcomed. We're going to start today's episode with Becky Tuttle. Becky proudly serves her community as an elected official on the Wichita City Council in Kansas. Her resume as a public health professional is extensive, ranging from school readiness to tobacco prevention, and she successfully moved across sectors to promote healthy choices. So thank you to the citizens of Wichita for letting us borrow Becky for a bit. I'm Becky Tuttle, and I'm currently serving on the Wichita City Council, representing District 2. I represent about 70,000 constituents in our northeast portion of our great city. Um, I consider myself to be a public health professional. I started my career working in schools um, after that um, because I realized uh, when I was working in the schools, instead of just focusing on trying to make kids better, maybe we should focus on trying to make the community better for kids. And so then um, found a position where it was a bridge between the community and the schools. And that was really my first experience working in public health and was actually housed at a public, um, a local health department. Um, and then then went to work at the Kansas Department of Health and Environment in the Tobacco Use Prevention Program and became the quit line manager and started the Kansas Tobacco Quit Line. But for a, a little bit, I was also the media and policy coordinator. So got some more experience with policy, especially with trying to get our great state to go tobacco free, to go smoke free, fighting for clean indoor air at the community level and then at the state level. And then I spent some time at our local health department um, and was had a great experience working in health promotion, but also with the accreditation process, quality improvement, strategic planning, and worked at the Medical Society of Sedgwick County. Um, again, most people wouldn't consider it a public health path, but was coordinating a federal grant to prevent obesity, diabetes, heart attack, and stroke. And then I went to our Greater Wichita YMCA, where I was the executive director of community development, and I tell people it was all things not swim engine. So all of our outreach programs, our urban outreach, uh, youth employment, which is obviously a public health issue. Um, also our disease management program, worksite wellness, healthy eating and physical activity. So now um, in, I was appointed to fulfill the last year of a term on city council in January of 2018. And in in November of 2019 was successful in a campaign and now I'm serving on a four-year term as city council. Let's listen to Becky's thoughts on our shared responsibility to advocate for public health, no matter the real or perceived barriers. Remember, if it can't be you, then find your allies. Funders and electeds have to know about the work we're doing so they find it valuable. 
Trust me, listeners, most of them will find it valuable, but we got to help them connect the dots. Absolutely. We have a responsibility and I've worked at the local level um, as you know, in a local health department, I've worked at the state level at the state health department. So I understand that it's tricky, especially when you're, you know, funded by, by public dollars that you can't maybe always be the actual advocate. And some will say what you do in your free time in the evening is your own time. But I understand living in a community, you know, which just Greater Wichita area is about 500,000, but still 500,000 people, but still, you know, people knew who I was. They, they didn't just say, oh, she, she works at the health department, but so I, I had to toe that line. But even if you can't be the voice for the advocacy, you can find people to be the voice for, for the advocacy work. So, you know, I, I often say where people live, learn, earn, play and pray. So, you know, if, if we were working on an initiative, let's say clean indoor air, and at the time I worked at the state health department and I worked at the local health department, I never went before the elected body when the when it was happening, but I got people to go before the elected body. And we got people from faith-based organizations or, you know, the YMCA's or education where businesses, whatever it may be, who could be the voice that I could not be. Um, unfortunately, in much of public health, the funding is, you know, comes from the government level. And so we need to make sure that we have a, a loud and local voice, if you will, that they know that the work that we're doing. Um, you mentioned about public health. What I always say is people miss public, people recognize public health when there's the absence of it. When it goes away, then they go, oh, so we have to work really hard to make sure that that doesn't happen and people know how important it is. And again, that public health is not just for one segment of the population. Public health impacts everyone in every community, every state, everyone in our nation every day, whether they recognize it or not. I, I joke with our public health. I just had a meeting today with our public uh, works director who, you know, think water, um, you know, roads, bridges, you know, all of that. And, and I tell him, you're a public health professional. You just don't know it, right? <laughs> because they're working on things that are so impactful. You know, if we didn't have quality roads or bicycle and pedestrian transportation options or whatever it may be of clean water, sewage, they're doing public health work. They just don't know it. So, you know, building some of that common ground as well. More public health professionals need to do what I did. Um, and, and need to take the leap, not only of being advocates, that's fantastic, but I would love to see many more benches across the state, across the nation, filled with people who are public, have a public health background. And, and that's something that's kind of daunting and scary. And if anybody ever wants to call me at any time or email me and talk about, you know, what's it like to be an elected official from my perspective, I'd be more than happy to spend some time sharing it. But, um, you know, I, I'm really glad that I did it. And I'm, I think, you know, I'm, I'm obviously doing impactful work. I was doing sometimes I think more impactful work before, um, but more public health professionals not only need to be advocates, but they also need to think about being elected officials and lead your community and your state with your public health hat on. Public healthers, if you run for office, you'd have my vote. Now it's been said before that public health is not for sissies. You have to be tough. You have to take the good with the bad and you can't get discouraged. Advocacy is no different. It's absolutely necessary, but it is equal parts frustrating and rewarding. 
you're not always going to get what you want. And sometimes the wins are going to take a lot longer than you have the patience for. That's why it's critical to celebrate small victories to stay motivated. Remember, you've been called to a lifelong marathon with no finish line. Burnout is not an option because, candidly, there's just not enough of us. Becky recounts her wins and losses and the lessons she's learned along the way. Let's listen. I helped lead our fluoride initiative. Wichita is one of the is the third largest city in the nation that doesn't does not um, you know provide fluoride in our water to the optimal level. So, by no big surprise, we also have the third highest caries rate for elementary school children in the nation. We were not successful in that initiative. And, and I learned as much from that initiative as the successful ones. Um, I've also worked significantly in the built environment and been an advocate and also a fund seeker to help our develop our 10-year master bicycle plan, our 10-year master um, pedestrian plan and um, help launch bike share in our community, which was a huge win for the city of Wichita. And I'm really also involved in healthy eating initiatives. Um, in 2013, did some research with other folks and found that 25% of our population lives in a food desert. We have 44 square miles of food deserts within the city of Wichita. And now we're, and I'm helping to champion a 10-year master food plan for the city of Wichita. And I was at a meeting a couple of weeks ago where we're still plugging through this work, even in the COVID environment. And somebody said, we've been doing this for five years. And I said, I know it's only taken five years. And a lot of people on the call, the Zoom meeting, if you will, were, were kind of taken aback by that. But I understand that sometimes these aren't quick you know, technical issues that we're dealing with where there's just a fix. If you have a flat tire, you know exactly what you do. You change the tire. But when we're looking at big systemic issues, it does sometimes take, it takes time and it takes multiple people with different seats on the bus and, and realizing the changing environment, but just having a lot of tenacity and making sure you're keeping your eye on the end goal keeps hopefully people motivated and, and keeps, keeps them with you as you keep pushing forward. So I think having an understanding of this isn't going to be easy and it's not going to be fast in the very beginning sometimes can help keep people engaged in the process. I, I think sometimes people always think if you're doing advocacy work that you have to change an ordinance or resolution or a law to have a win. And what I found is that there's a lot of little wins along the way to get you to the big win. Uh, and I talk a lot about little P versus big P. And little P is focusing on people where people live, learn, earn, play, and pray. So for example, I and I always go back to clean indoor air because I think it's something that you know a lot of public health professionals can resonate with. But we didn't just go to the state and say, we want a clean indoor air law. Thank you. First, we went to the schools and we got the school grounds to go tobacco free, smoke free. And then we went to hospitals because that makes a lot of sense who should be smoking in a hospital. And then we went to businesses and said, and, you know, got some pushback, especially from the hospitality industry. But, you know, these are going to be the benefits of you going smoke free and then also non-for-profits and even in people's own homes. And so we had a lot of small victories that added up so that when we were trying to go to the electeds for the city, we could say, look at all of these wins we already have. It's just the next step in the progress of, of protecting the health of the community. The schools have done it. The hospitals have done it. Worksites have done it. Not-for-profits have done it. So now 
now let's take it to the next level and make it a more comprehensive win. So uh, it's not always just going, you know, straight for the big, you got to get a little, lot of little wins along the way. Throughout this whole podcast series, the theme of building relationships has dominated in our interviews. That's because changing the status quo, even for the better, is a heavy lift. And be honest, you wouldn't help a stranger move. You know, pack up their heavy boxes and move them across town. But you do the heavy lifting for a friend. Knowing your elected officials prior to an ask is key to accomplishing your goals before you even know you have them. It's reciprocal, though. We're a resource for them, too. We know things that they don't know about the health of their community. We have the power to help them be better public servants too. You need to build your friendships before you need friends, especially if you're doing work in this arena. Um, you know, it's best if you already have a base of constituents, a base of stakeholders, um, and then also a base of your elected officials, already a relationship established. So that way, when you're going to go and, um, you know, talk to them and get their advice on how to proceed and and understand where you are um, in terms of, you know, how likely your, your initiative is going to be successful. Um, and an example of a time when it didn't go well for me was, as I mentioned, um, working in fluoride and trying to get our community to optimize our water our fluoridation level to the optimal level. And so that we could, you know, and truly for me, it was an equity issue to make sure that that everyone in the community has access to one of the essential, you know, we know it's one of the one, the public health wonders, if you will, um, like seatbelts or clean indoor air. And, and we didn't win. We weren't successful. We lost. It ended up being 54 to 46%. It ended up going to the general vote. And so it was a little bit, not only disheartening for me being involved in the initiative and the coalition being involved in the initiative, but then also trying to rebuild our, our, trust in our case, if you will, with the public health, excuse me, the electeds in our community. Um, you know, we, we were uh, champions for clean and door air and, and got a lot of good relationships established. But then when we lost an initiative, we realized that, you know, we had to go back and, and remind our electeds that the public health community in Wichita was a trusted, neutral and reliable source. And even though that initiative wasn't successful, there were going to be other things that we continue to push forward and work on. Becky Tuttle is a rare gem. It's uncommon for elected officials to have any knowledge of the public health sector upon entering into office. It is common for them, though, to want to do right by their constituency, and this does include their health. Becky offers some tips to show them how the work you do benefits their constituents. You know, the people who vote for them every few years. When elected officials are making decisions, they're representing their constituency. And so as a public health professional, if you're going to take something to them that's a policy initiative, you need to show them why it's important to their constituents and how it would help them to benefit their constituents. And I think sometimes public health professionals, we forget that. We just think, oh, this is the way it should be. The science and data tells us that, but not everybody is a public health professional. And I, I do a lot of um, advocacy presentations in the community and and I always preface it by saying, assume that your elected officials do not know what you know, because I guarantee they don't. And for example, right now in our city council, one of our electeds, one of my colleagues is a real estate agent. 
He doesn't know anything about public health, but he's open to it and he wants to learn about it. But you have to present him the information in a way that he knows. Um, just like when realtors come to me or developers come to me as a public, as a elected, and they want me to do something, I sometimes have to go, okay, you got to give me the 101 because I don't even know what you're talking about. So making sure that they don't ever assume that electeds know what you know as a public health professional. They don't. Becky's also participated in events that simultaneously educate elected officials and the public. What a great way to feed two birds with one seed. I helped to lead and champion a candidate forum on health. And I think we've done it six years in a row now. Um, and at the time it was kind of a foreign concept in our community it had never been done. And I think even the electeds that were running were like, you know, what is this? We don't do anything with health. We're city council or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so just like arts and education and, you know, businesses, they all have forums or they endorse candidates in some way. We bring every year, we bring the candidates who are running for city council or county commission to a forum. And we ask them questions like, what do you think the biggest public health challenges in the community? If you're elected, you know, 1% of funding for transportation in the city of Wichita right now is dedicated towards active transportation. If you were elected, what percent would you recommend? Or, you know, how would you address food deserts? But the other thing that we do that is, I think, really good is that we send them the questions in advance with the links to where they can find the answers, such as our community health improvement plan or our work on food deserts or you know whatever it may be. And so a great example of a success was, um, this would have been like five years ago now, I think, we had, it was the city council and we sent them the information on food deserts and, you know, asked them and had the forum and, you know, give them time. And it, we do it with the League of Women Voters and it's a really formal professional forum and process. And I remember one of the candidates coming up to me afterwards and saying, I didn't even know we had food deserts. I read the whole food desert study. This is fascinating. Why aren't we doing more? And so our thought is not only our the people who are watching the forum able to learn about the candidates so they can make better decisions. You're also educating the candidates. So then they have more tools in their tool belt and a better understanding of public health initiatives. And this is something that we do with little or no cost. Um, it's just a, you know, some sweat equity from some public health professionals who really care. What are the unintended consequences? Make sure you're ready for this question from elected officials. It's a popular one. I've heard it regularly myself, and it might help you catch something you've missed. After all, it's better to prevent problems before they start, right? Becky explains. One of the things that we say as electeds in my community, and I hear all the time from my colleagues, is what are the unintended consequences? So if a really well-intentioned group, public health or education or whatever it may be, comes to us and says, you know, we want you to do blank, in our minds, we're thinking, yeah, okay, that sounds great, but what are the implications that make may come from that. And, and if I can share an example, almost immediately when I got appointed, I had a um, bike ped advocacy group come to me and they knew my background. And, you know, so they, they picked me to come to first 
and they wanted to pass an ordinance helmet in our city. And I think they just assumed that I was going to say, yep, I am a huge advocate for bicycling, done a lot for the built environment. Let's have a helmet ordinance. And I actually said, no, I'm not going to champion this for you. I believe in helmets. I'm a huge advocate for helmets. I've given away free helmets for you know five or six years. But if you ride your bike, you got a thousand dollar bike and you ride it a hundred miles on the weekend, you can afford a helmet. If your only form of transportation as a bike or walking or maybe using public transit, you probably don't have a helmet because you can't afford a helmet. And so now we're going to fine people for not having helmets who already can't afford it. So the unintended consequences to me didn't outweigh the policy work. And so just thinking like that, um, you know, there's always the expression of the moved and the shaken. You want to, the movers and the shakers, you want to work with the movers and the shakers. And I say all the time, I want to think about and work with the moved and the shaken, who's going to be impacted by the work that we're doing and what's going, what's it going to mean to them at the end. So really digging a little bit deeper. And I think most good elected officials are thinking of that and thinking of the unintended consequences. And for me, for example, there are some people who kind of are a one cause profession, um, you know, because my work was in health promotion and focused on physical activity, healthy eating, oral health, a fetal infant mortality, worksite wellness, whatever, I, I had a broader scope. So I was always keeping my finger in some sort of policy initiative for public health and, and just trying to remain, um, keep, keep the balance. And then also you, you don't want to wear people out, including your electeds. You know, if you do something and then you, know, you win or you don't, and then two weeks later, you come right back to them again, it doesn't look strategic or methodical. So thinking about, you know, what's the environment in the community, what's going on in the community, what's going to benefit the community and in, in the most impactful way, and not just, you know, throwing a bunch of stuff out there and seeing what sticks. So that kind of helps keep it kept me focused too on, okay, you know, these are the one or two things that we can work on and, and do well, and then we'll move on to the next. As the saying goes, hindsight's twenty twenty, but it's also true that different perspectives offer different lessons. Becky spent years advocating and lobbying elected officials. Now she is one. We asked how she's looked back on some of her tactics now that she's on the other side did some things really well. And it's made me think, Ooh, I did some things really poorly. Um, you know, just knowing and thinking about timing also, again, I, I say this all the time, but the building friendships before you, you need the friends, um, you know, there, there are groups and organizations that come to me who are interested in, in different platforms that they have. And I know them, I respect them, I trust them. And then other groups and I'm like, where did you come from and what is this? So those are some of the, the things that I think that, you know, initiatives that I've been involved at have done well. And that's why they were, uh, for the most part, had been successful. Um, I do think timing is is really key. Some people are coming to us now, like I said, in the COVID world with, with wants and we're like, you know, this probably isn't the time we need to focus on that. We're just trying to protect the health of the community. Um, one thing that did come back to me um, and, and my public health professionals and my colleagues on city council have laughed um, in 2015, our, the majority of our Sedgwick County commissioners 
presented a budget that was going to slash the public health department um, and specifically the programs that I was involved with. And so we developed an initiative. We developed a coalition of coalitions building a case for public health, really moved forward with an educational opportunity to remind the community what public health was and, and what it was not, because there was a misconception that public health was just for, and I'm using my quote fingers, poor people. And the majority of our county commissioners thought that too. And so really educating that public health is for everyone. Every I remember a county commissioner asked me how many people in the community I served as a public health professional. And I said every single one of them, because everybody's impacted by public health. Whether you walk in the front door of the health department or not, you're being impacted by public health. But one of the things that we helped do is for the budget hearings for the county, we packed the room with probably 75 folks who talked about the impact of public health and, and what it would do if these positions were cut. And now as an elected official, uh, you know, when people come and pack the room, whether it be they want masks or they don't want masks or they want to defund the police or fund the police, I'm laughing going, okay, I guess this is karma coming back to me because now I'm, I'm sitting here with, you know, this packed room of 75 people who are passionate about an issue and it's what I used to do to them. And I think sometimes as public health professionals, we just think, oh, it's what we do, but people need to know what you do and recognize the importance. And then also not just to public health, tie it back to economic development, tie it back to attracting and retaining talent, attracting and retaining businesses, whatever it may be. Companies will move to a city because it's a healthy community. Companies will stay in a community that's healthy. And we don't oftentimes do a good enough job of making that dotted line a little bit more solid so that elected officials understand that. In her previous example, Becky talked about building a coalition, even a coalition of coalitions. So we asked her to talk more about their importance and what's key to building a successful one. Coalition work is something that I've done for years, and I tell people it's kind of like nailing jello to a wall. It's it's messy, but it's a lot of fun, right? Um, and and coalitions truly, to me, are the way that community mobilization and and things get changed. And I see that even more clearly now, being an elected official, um, even more than when I was boots on the ground leading the initiatives. But um, if you think about any typical coalition that you go to, the only reason that those people are in that room together, in that environment together, striving for that cause together is the common goal of they want the same thing. For the most part, those same people would never be together on an initiative if it wasn't for that cause or that issue that you're working on. So, you know, just making sure that people have a common goal, they have a common end in sight. Um, you know, I, I tell people all the time, if, if I was going to leave Wichita and trying to get to New York City, if everyone on the coalition was going to say, we're going to leave right now and get to New York City, all of us might take a different path to get to New York City, but we'd all end up in New York City. So just making sure that we, we all know what the goal is. Um, celebrating the small successes and wins along the way, but then also understanding when challenges happen or things don't go the way we would, what can what lessons can be learned. Um, and, and sometimes there isn't always um, consensus of the group. Um, I've had different initiatives where we've had partners who had to walk away because they said, you know, we're not going to be able to get everything we want from this, so we, we can't stay at the table. And, and that's okay. But always to bringing in new people 
And one of the things that I've done too, when I've been involved in coalition work, and if we know we're trying for a city ordinance, let's say, is to say, how many people have been to a city council meeting? If you haven't, we're going. How many people have met with your electeds? If you haven't, we're going. Um, our database that we have for coalitions, especially I'm chair of the Health and Wellness Coalition of Wichita, still, even as city council member, and we focus on healthy eating and physical activity for every generation living in the greater Wichita area. And our database of members is sorted, you know, we have their name, first and last name, email address. We also have, you know, um, their, their address. And then the last column is what city council member district they live in. And we kind of keep an eye on that too, to make sure that if we do need to go talk to, let's say, council member in district one, it may be the chair of the coalition, but it's also constituents from district one. So when people think about the coalition work that they're doing, thinking forward of making sure that you're getting a really large scope of the of the community on the coalition so that when you have an issue and you need to go talk to an elected official, it's always best if you can take one of their actual constituents with you. Becky's passion is contagious. I admire how often she stepped up for her community. Listening to her is extremely motivating and that's what this series is about. Finding your advocacy voice and locking in your motivation. We're all advocates, and we all have a sphere of influence to tap into. And I definitely agree with Becky. We need public healthers in more places where decisions are being made. Thank you for role modeling civic service, Becky. I wish I could vote for you. Now, our next interviewee is Kathy Calloway. Talk about influence. Kathy Calloway is one of the most influential voices on tobacco use prevention policy in the United States. She's the director for state and local campaigns for the American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network. Here in Iowa, she led the charge on our state's Smoke-Free Air Act, along with many other partners. Thanks to her, we can breathe easier indoors. Listen closely to her words of wisdom. Well, I work for the American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network, and I am the director of state and local campaigns. So what I do is I, I work with all of our staff and volunteers throughout the country on uh, prevention campaigns. And underneath that prevention umbrella includes tobacco control, healthy eating, active living, and environmental issues. And we do some skin cancer policies as well. I went to Iowa State University and I graduated with a degree in community health education. And uh, from there, I met some wonderful people that worked at the American Lung Association of Iowa. And so I started my career there. And towards the end of my career at the American Lung Association was when the uh, state attorneys general uh, sued the tobacco companies uh, that resulted in the master <clears throat> settlement agreement. And that uh, kind of was my entree into the uh, advocacy world. Kathy's been working on tobacco control policies for many years. Think of her as David in the fight against a well-funded Goliath that is the tobacco industry. But if Kathy can experience successes against this gargantuan opponent, imagine what you can do in your fight. Be inspired, listeners. You know, with tobacco control, we have a very well-funded opponent uh, with big tobacco. And I think it is if you look at historically, there's been a lot of ups and downs in tobacco control policy and tobacco use. 
And uh, we can certainly track the trends in tobacco use in line with where the tobacco companies are spending their marketing dollars and how they're marketing their products. It seems like every, over the years, it seems like every time we put a policy into place, the tobacco industry either finds a new product or they find a new way to work around uh, those policies that we've put in place. Uh, they're extremely savvy and uh, they have a lot of money. Like I mentioned, they also have a lot of attorneys. Um, it seems every time we pass a policy, they're filing a lawsuit against the policy in order to delay implementation of any effective policies in order to protect their bottom line. So I think, you know, over the years, we have had a lot of success, but the industry continues to evolve and we need to continue to evolve as well not only in our policies, but in how we approach elected officials about passing the policies that we're working on in order to be successful. And I think we have to be in it for the long game. The tobacco industry isn't just going to pack up and go away. So I think it's really important that we do look at the um, incremental progress uh, that we can make. I think it's important as we plan uh, campaigns that we build in opportunities for success it can be very frustrating to try and pass a policy when you don't have the support of the governor, when you don't have support of legislative leadership, and it can just feel like you're banging your head up against the wall to no avail. So I think it's very important to figure out where you can factor in those incremental wins or that incremental progress. You know, it doesn't always have to be a uh, policy win uh, but it can be building your coalition. It can be little steps towards that policy win, you know, getting organizations to sign on in support of the policy. It can be passing local resolutions in support of a statewide policy. It can be passing local ordinances. I think that is one of the hallmarks of success in the tobacco control movement is working community by community and passing those policies doing that public education, building that momentum to reassure state lawmakers that the sky isn't going to fall if they embrace a certain policy and implement it statewide. Maybe it's better to say that the tobacco industry is like Medusa. Seems like they can regrow their snakeheads too. My goodness. Many campaigns that Kathy's been a part of just haven't gone the way she's wanted. This will happen to all advocates, including you. Kathy has some great advice for how to handle setbacks. You know, sometimes I think it's okay to put a campaign aside and work on something else where there is feasibility. It can really be frustrating uh, to individuals and to, to coalitions to just bang your head up against that wall. And in order to keep people from getting frustrated and leaving the movement, it's finding an avenue where you can be successful or where you can have that success. And sometimes that is meant, you know, we're just not going to work on raising a tobacco tax this year. We're going to look at doing something else. And I think going into 2021, you know, with everything that's going on in the world, I think it's going to be really important to protect things that we have in place. I think money is going to be tight. I think we're going to have to defend the appropriations that we've advocated for for years. And now more than ever, we need to make sure that people have access to health care. And I think that's really going to be important. And I think we need to go in 
into it with our eyes wide open and looking for those opportunities that may not be exactly in line with what we're hoping to do at this point in 2021. When we've killed bad legislation, that's, that's a win in, in our book. You know, it's not just getting a new law in place or something new, but if we can stop something bad from happening or stop uh, funding from being rolled back, um, you know, those, those are wins as well. And I think it's important as uh, leaders of campaigns and, and leaders in public health that we're adequately communicating that to people that we're working with, so that it shouldn't be seen as we didn't get anything new this year, but if we protected bad things from happening, that's big. Remember earlier when Becky Tuttle said that electeds only know so much? Well, Kathy agrees. Elected officials know a little bit about a lot of things, and public health needs to be one of them. But public healthers have confidence when talking to these people that you are the subject matter expert in the room. You are the knowledgeable one, and knowledge is power. You know, when you're dealing with elected officials, I think it's important to remember that they're, um, they know a little bit about a, a lot of things. They are not the, um, you know, going to be the experts that we are on a certain issue in public health. And so I think it's important to have patience. It's important to uh, speak to elected officials, um, you know, to meet them where they're at, you know, find out what they are interested in and um, educate them without overwhelming them. Um, I think, you know, and it's also the process of how um, policy happens. You know, we don't always have to pass a law. Sometimes we can do things through rules and regulations. And I think just educating um, volunteers and coalition members, it can be very frustrating if you don't know what the process is. And if you can lay out that process, I think that helps set expectations as well as timelines. And I think it also can help lay out when you get those wins. Like if you get a bill sponsor, that's a win. If you get a bill introduced in the committee you wanted it introduced in, that's a win. And all of those little baby steps should be celebrated as wins, I think. Hey, listeners, did you know that you're doing something right when you're sued? Kathy thinks so. Here's more. You know, a lot of what I do in my role is help states uh, plan their legislative campaigns, you know, from the very beginning of doing public education around the issue to full-blown implementation and defense of a policy. And I think, you know, preparing, you know, when you're doing, you're doing something right when you're sued, uh, when there's litigation against you. And not every lawsuit is going to be as big as the master settlement agreement against tobacco companies. I mean, right now throughout the country, Big Tobacco is filing lawsuits against um, ordinances and even a California state law that would regulate the sale of flavored tobacco products. And, you know, so we, we anticipate that. We know when the industry is going to sue. We just, we build that into our campaign, but it's, it's incredibly important um, on both sides. I mean, the American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network has, along with our public health partners, has sued the Food and Drug Administration for how they're handling the regulation of e-cigarettes. And, you know, that's very important because that moves the agency to do something, to change the way they are regulating the product. 
And I think on the flip side, when the tobacco companies do, when court decisions are, are, are made, that gives us the path going forward. You know, if they win, we know we have to adjust. If we win, we continue to go forward. So it's a very important part of the public health process. Public healthers, how you feeling about politics these days? Not only does it feel divisive and incredibly counterproductive in a pandemic, but there's so much money involved in the political economy, too. It's really hard to gain influence without a king's wealth, it seems. We may as well be the Monopoly guy with our pockets turned out, or worse yet, Oliver Twist asking for more porridge. Kathy suggests that we look to local leaders instead. You know, our neighbors who happen to be the mayors, city councilors, county supervisors, or members of the local boards of health. Not only are you from their neck of the woods, but there aren't as many of them to win over to get some wins. And these little bites are often critical to taking the whole cake. Kathy explains. I think in public health, especially on policies where we're dealing with big, well-funded opponents, working at the local level is key. I think it is, um, you have a smaller community to educate. You usually have a smaller decision-making body to educate and fewer votes to get. And you also often have less campaign contributions from big tobacco or other opponents, big sugar, big food. Um, and so really working at that local level is where you can test the waters. And we know that corporate America knows this because we're seeing so many preemption bills. And preemption is when uh, legislation sets the, the ceiling rather than the floor. We were working on um, smoke-free and uh, making the state of Iowa work workplaces, restaurants, and bars smoke-free. And um, we passed the local ordinance in the city of Ames, and Big Tobacco sued, and it was determined that uh, the state of Iowa, that communities in Iowa were preempted uh, from passing local smoke-free ordinances. So we launched a campaign to repeal or to clarify that preemption language in the state law, and that in the end resulted in the smoke-free Iowa uh, law. Unfortunately, that law still exists casino workers. So while we celebrated that law, unfortunately, you know, how many years later now? 10, 12, 12 years later, we still, we still haven't protected casino workers and their right to breathe smoke-free air. So, you know, wins, um, are important to celebrate, but it's also important not to forget about those that are left behind and come back and closing those loopholes. But back to my original point, you know, Big Tobacco knows preemption works. Uh, they know they have more control over state legislatures. They know they have more control in Congress than they do in um, small rural Iowa um, or communities, uh, you know, like Des Moines, Iowa City even. So, but it's really important if we can get those ordinances passed at the local level, people are educated, people understand the policy better when you start at the local level, the um, implementation of local policies is often easier and you can get any kinks out of an enforcement effort um, worked out at the local level before launching a policy statewide. There's just a lot of benefits to working at the local level before working at the state level. 
oftentimes we start in communities where we know the city council and the city attorney are going to be friendly to our issues so we can get some successes under our belt before we um, start on the harder issues or the harder um, in areas of the state where it's politically more difficult. And I think one thing that that does is if you can get a city attorney on your side, they can talk to other city attorneys. I, I am not an attorney and I have found that when we can connect attorneys with other attorneys, they have that lawyerly speak to one another goes a lot further than it does hearing from the crazy cancer lady again. So I, I think that's, that's definitely a best practice. And we're very fortunate uh, throughout the country to have several uh, public health legal centers. Um, there's the Public Health Law Center in St. Paul, Minnesota, and they're more than willing. I mean, they cannot lobby and they do not lobby, but they are more than willing to talk to a city attorney and say this policy has triggered, you know, they're monitoring uh, litigation throughout the country. And so they can easily say that these are things in your ordinance that may trigger a lawsuit because we also saw it in this community, or this is how a court decision came out on this issue. And so you might want to take that into consideration as you're drafting your ordinance. But it, it, it's a very important part. And, you know, getting the city attorneys on our side is really um, important. They can make or break an issue for us. Public healthers, who are your allies? Allies are people or groups of people who have the same interests as you, or they might have the capacity or resources to help you achieve your advocacy goals. No one sector can tackle the health and wellness challenges we face in the 21st century alone. Think of how many sectors are involved in social determinants of health issues. Schools, businesses, healthcare, law enforcement. Find your community allies, including parents. Speak to your shared purpose and ask them for help. In fact, as Kathy explains, parents have been key partners in the fight against electronic cigarettes. Think of the powerful economic development arguments that businesses can make. They want a healthy workforce. Public health reaching across sectors is what advocacy for public health is all about. Listen to Kathy's tips for finding your allies. When we lay out a campaign plan, we take a lot of consideration as to who should care about this issue. And, you know, we just try to do a brainstorm of anybody that you could think of that would care about this issue. I think one of the exciting things that has happened with the recent rise in e-cigarette use amongst kids throughout the country is moms. Moms are really, and dads too, I mean, they're really fired up. And we have had a lot of people engage just because of their personal experience of having their kid come home with a jewel pod in their backpack or something you know, they were shocked to know that one, their kid was using these products and two, that they were not safe products. And I think that that personal um, reaction, that personal um, experience is, is one way that people, um, you know, seek us out and are like, how can I get engaged in this? What can I do as a parent to um, re reduce tobacco use in my home, in my community, in my state? But I think there's also, you know, looking at, um, we know tobacco use increases um, the, the amount of money that the state spends on, on Medicaid, for example. And so some lawmakers that may not have 
done anything on tobacco use or some organizations that may, um, you know, care about health or care about the state's uh, fiscal state may not um, be engaged in tobacco use. But if we, when we can tell them that by reducing tobacco use, we will reduce that in the state that will free up other revenue for other projects that the state uh, needs money for, you know, that can get them engaged. That can also, you know, get a lawmaker on our side too, where they may have not have thought about it all the impacts that tobacco use has on the state. And I think too, you know, just like, you know, going back to some of the tobacco tax campaigns that we've uh, won over the years, we've been able to pull in a lot of different organizations that maybe don't care about tobacco use, but they need money for something. And, you know, when bud state budgets are tight, if there's a new revenue stream, you know, that's that's helped get uh, non-traditional partners on board with I can I can support that and that'll free up some revenue for whatever a pet project may be in a state. Remember Becky Tuttle's warning about unintended consequences? Well, Kathy had her own cautionary tale to share. Keep listening. A lot of states have been engaged in raising the age of sale for tobacco products to 21. And um, we have advocated for the penalties for someone selling to a person under age to be on the retailer, the tobacco retailer that holds the license to sell tobacco products. And um, against our guidance, a community uh, retained penalties on uh, kids. I mean, like $500. I mean, a lot of money uh, on a kid. And that policy passed. And what they have found is that those penalties on underage persons in that community are largely being placed on black and brown members of the community. And so you're not only an ineffective penalty, but it also impacts the health equity of the policy, which is incredibly important. And so learning those lessons and doing that education up front, I mean, fortunately, the um, uh, individual that cut the deal um, sees the light now and the, the community is working to, to fix that policy now. But, um, you know, a lot of kids had to get, had to, had to receive that fine for that to happen. But I say that just as, you know, with every campaign, we learn lessons. And it's important to share those lessons and, um, you know, make sure that we're, we're, we're moving forward. One final tip that Kathy offers on effective advocacy relates to harnessing the power of the media, both social and traditional. Part of the strategy is to educate the public. Oh, and knowing how your opponent gets their message out can help direct your efforts, too. Media advocacy is huge. The social media ad aspect of campaigns is, is like none other that we, we've seen in previous years. But it's so important uh, that the tactic of utilizing media, um, we, we build that into all of our campaigns. It, it's very, you know, we can co communicate one-on-one -on -one, uh, to people only so much, but getting your issue out in the media to educate the masses is incredibly important. Oftentimes, we will do public opinion polling so that we can demonstrate to, well, first, we learn from it. 
if you know we don't have a majority of support on an issue, that tells me we have a lot of education to do. If we do have a lot of support on an issue, we can show that to lawmakers to show them that their constituents support this issue and we need them to take action on it. It also helps us with creating our messaging for a campaign. And, you know, we usually do a press conference or press release when we have uh, poll results. I think that's just one uh, tactic to get media. We also work on letters to the editor, believe it or not. Um, you know, they are still very important. Opinion, um, op-eds, those, those pieces are very important. We try and get... Um, you know, we look at who is signing those letters to the editor. We look who is signing at those op-eds. We're strategic about that because we want to make sure that it's a reputable voice that both the public and elected officials will listen to. And, you know, on social media as, as well, you know, getting our message out there, getting doing education. I mean, it's, it's certainly um, something that we recommend building into a campaign. And the industry is doing it. Every tobacco company has a, a grassroots online presence and they're getting better at it. It used to be a space that, that we felt we kind of owned, um, but they're, they're doing a lot with getting their message to tobacco retailers, uh, to tobacco users out in the state. They all have their, um, they're good at Twitter and, um, you know, unfortunately, we've seen in, in recent years um, some some promotion of their products on how to use their products uh, through YouTube and other uh, social influencers. And, you know, I, I always like to look at what the tobacco industry is doing. That tells me that's what we need to be doing or the space we need to be occupying as well. So it's something that we track uh, all the time and you know getting out there in the media is very important. We're always focusing on who has the power to give us what we want and making sure that we are using tactics that move those people that have that power. And I mean, you can go to a lot of work. Um, I'm sure we remember back in the day where there were a lot of poster contests and you know giveaways for kids um, you know around drug prevention and tobacco prevention and you can spend a lot of time resources and effort on doing things that may not necessarily move the needle on your policy and so I think it's really important of looking at what your goal is who has the power to give us what we want and then engaging first and foremost in the tactics that will move those people. As this podcast episode of Share Public Health comes to a close, a big thank you to Becky Tuttle and Kathy Calloway for sharing their stories, expertise, and passion for public health advocacy. Now we know we have to celebrate our wins, learn from our losses, and place our focus locally. Find those community allies and build relationships on a shared community purpose too. Be sure to listen to the other episodes of this podcast series on public health advocacy. Now go, go on, go tell somebody your public health story for the good of the cause, and don't forget to celebrate those wins. This is Deborah Thompson, and thanks so much for listening. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Share Public Health. Thank you to Sonia Armbruster, Brandon Grimm, 
Janine Moody, Hannah Schultz, and Kristen Wilson for helping to plan and produce the series. Thank you to Melissa Richland for audio production and support. This podcast is supported by a grant from the Health Resources and Services Administration. A transcript and evaluation for this episode is available at mphtc.org and in the podcast notes.